Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Last year was the 60th anniversary of the Mandarin Oriental Hong Kong. And in a previous programme, I wandered around the ground floor with author and history researcher Vodine England as we talked about a permanent exhibition of a series of panels in the East Lobby that tells the story of the history of this iconic hotel in Central and where you can see great photos of bellboys and their uniforms from the 1960s. I've highlighted that programme from last March on the Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page if you'd like to have a listen. Vodin England has written a number of books on various aspects of Hong Kong's history, including the life story of a very quiet but significant philanthropist, Noel Croucher. In more recent times, the biography of Harry Harilela, who began standing on a street side with his brother with a case full of toothbrushes and other small items to sell to British soldiers. He later became a huge hotel and property magnate. Her other books include The Hong Kong Club, The History of Arnold's, and last year, the book that is a must-read and timely history of all the communities that have made Hong Kong what it is today, particularly the Eurasians, but the Portuguese, the Armenians, the Chinese, the South Asians, and so on. Carl Anderson said at this first meeting, um, he's really making a a sort of clarion call to Eurasians to mm. to stand up and say, you know, this is who we are, let's do something with it, and let's sort of hang together. The book is called Fortune's Bazaar. There are two programmes about that, which I've also highlighted on the Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page, but you can also find in the regular Hong Kong Heritage podcast archive. In addition to her books, Vodine is now a part of History Inc., a collaboration with Helen Swinnerton, the former archivist of HSBC, and with Amelia Allsop, who set up the excellent Hong Kong Heritage Project for the Kadoris. You can see all those oral histories and stories online at their website. The main aim of History Inc. is to help businesses and organisations such as museums and charities, as well as individual families, preserve their history and share it should they choose to. That could be by setting up archives or a book. So two clients of theirs have been the Mandarin Oriental and the bank Santander UK. So we'll be hearing more on why building societies were created, as this week Vodin and I talk about the importance of archives and companies and individuals preserving their history for future generations. Archives are incredibly important for the wider good of, in this case, the Hong Kong community. We all know there are huge gaps, chasms, schisms, <laughs> and ignorances amongst us all about huge patches of Hong Kong history. There are a lot of gaps to be filled. But also about how firms and institutions can make their history and heritage an asset. I'm often surprised by companies here, or famous art institutions even, which may have a long history in Hong Kong, and yet there's nothing on their website. That story is interesting for the wider community, but also an invaluable resource for companies, organisations and families. Hong Kong is a combination of all of these stories. All of these stories. Not just what we think is daily reality today, but it's what your grandparents did. I feel we have a responsibility to take that history forward. So... How did History Inc. come about? This goes back for years and years. You know, I've been doing all sorts of historical research projects over the years. In the course of those, I have had to use archives. 
always the first step in any project that I do about anybody, person, company, institution, charity of Hong Kong, is I check in with somebody called Helen Swinnerton, who was in charge of the, in fact, who created the archives at HSBC and ran them here for 18 years in Hong Kong. And she made this fantastic gallery and attached to the archive in Kowloon where, you know, very special visitors are allowed to come and see the records of, you know, their, their great-grandparents who got their first account, that kind of thing. So she's a real innovator in terms of how do you persuade corporations to invest in their own history, how not only is it just a good thing to do, but how it really helps a corporation build its own sense of itself and how it helps create its own community within, you know, all the staff now apparently at HSBC, when they join, they have the chance to go and see the gallery and learn the history and they start to come out and thinking oh you know so they understand what they're yeah, a part so of we're yeah. part of something yeah. actually you know we're not just going and sitting at the bank teller's desk every day there's actually something larger going on that's been going on since in their case 1865 so archives are really important within an organization but archives are incredibly important for the wider good of in this case, the Hong Kong community. We all know there are huge gaps, chasms, schisms, <laughs> and ignorances amongst us all about huge patches of Hong Kong history. There are a lot of gaps to be filled. One way to fill them is to encourage families or companies or charities or whatever to take care and to make a serious contribution to the historical record of Hong Kong. Now. Of course, everybody can have their own opinions about different aspects of that, but the point of an archive is that that's the raw data. It's, it, you know, we're not interested in copies of things or you know, books that are already in library shelves. Archives are the original raw documents, you know, the actual sort of handwritten thing that says, I'd like to open an account or something in 1870 or whatever it is, but it's the original. So, first step, I would always go to the HSBC, so I got to know Helen. The other often first step is that I would go to something called the Hong Kong Heritage Project, which is an example of exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about, set up by the Kaduri family, which owns China Light and Power, the Peninsula Hotel Group, and quite a few other things. They initially wanted to make sure they kept a grip on their own history, because it was quite diverse. It goes over many generations. It pops up to Shanghai for a while. It comes back to Hong Kong. You know, this is a really interesting family involved in a lot of different things. So brilliantly they pulled that together and it started first as a company archive but anyone will see if they go to the website of the Hong Kong Heritage Project that it has a much broader remit now and is making serious contributions to the history of Hong Kong and they're actually just moving into new premises on Boundary Street which is another story very interesting anyway <laughs> the person there I would always deal with was Amelia Allsop, yes. she came out to Hong Kong to deal with it. So, hence, I knew Helen yes, and Amelia. because Amelia not only was instrumental in the Hong Kong Heritage Project, but she also did any number of oral histories of all those who were still alive yes. and uh, went back decades. Yes. And these started off with the those that had worked for Kadori firms, yes, but exactly. then widened out. Yes, and that covers a lot of families already who are still with us, you know, in different forms. So this is incredibly important material. You know, if you don't make the effort and go out and interview those people before they die, you don't get that material. It disappears. So Hong Kong is the loser if you don't do that sort of work. So 
the three of us call ourselves girls, but obviously I'm a bit older than the others. We all feel really quite obsessive about this. We actually care that this kind of thing is done. But how do you persuade, in this case, corporations to share your passion, right? To really encourage them to make that effort, make that investment. And so we like to show them the benefits. Okay, so how it really happened was that then Amelia went back to London first, a few, quite a few years ago, to do a PhD, which she has now done. She's Dr. Amelia. And I would meet her sometimes in London and I would say, oh, we, you know, we should collaborate. We should keep doing things, you know. No idea what, and we'd have another glass of red and that would be fine. <laughs> and then, of course, I realized, oh, Helen is leaving uh, Hong Kong. She's relocating to London. So I blithely said, well, of course you should join Amelia and me. I have no idea what we're doing. But of course the thing is, once you say something like that to Helen, what happens is that already, you know, within a week you're on a huge chain email. Within a month you actually have a registered company in London and within six weeks you have your first major client. Yeah, so you feel that corporations are interested in their own history? Um, we wish more were. Because yes. I'm always disappointed, you know, sometimes when I look at some of the corporations, some do it in more detail than others but I'm sometimes very surprised that there'll be a company in Hong Kong longevity you know really part of the fabric of early Hong Kong yet nothing on its website yeah. No, it's a puzzle. I mean, you know, we all live in our own little worlds, but I don't get it how they don't get it. <laughs> I love history, I guess you do yes. too. Yeah. Well, yeah, but also, you know, it can be useful. Yes. Mandarin's an example. They had a whole lot of stuff in back cupboards and so on. This project, you know, forced them to bring it out, to find really what they had and what they didn't have, and produce some marvellous surprises and great little stories, which hopefully people will enjoy. So as well as these exhibition panels, I mean, you were drawing items out of minutes you're looking right back mm. are you now saying right you need to get your archive in order or is that part of the service that you provide we would love to help anyone get their archive in order you, there's um, an inner librarian in you isn't there well well now nah, here's the thing there's a bit of a tribal gap between librarians and archives you know archivists are different there's something else now i'm not an archivist i'm a researcher and a, and a writer and i love both librarians and archivists we both we need them both but I early on did this little course, it was sort of three weeks archival studies, and it was quite revelatory. And I said, oh, well, you know, librarians, they only deal with copies. You know, a book is just a copy of something. It's not the original. So I thought, oh, okay, so archivists are something else. They only deal with originals. But also, you know, in a library, you've got something like the Dewey Decimal Category System. You know, each book has a little number. So we're saying, oh, this book is about history of Hong Kong, so it's number 946-something-something, you know. That's a categorization system that is international and obvious. With an archive, say you go into the back of any, it could be a family house, it could be a company office. I think everyone knows there is going to be a back cupboard somewhere, which is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we hope there is. <laughs> and the crucial thing is to grab them before they move office. That's exactly when you lose so much brilliant material, and I wish people would be aware of that. Don't throw out anything until you've had an archivist in to see what really has genuine historical value and what does not. Now, endless copies of one menu you don't need to keep that you need to keep one and and you need to have it ready for me when i want to make a panel about you know what happened with the imperial chinese banquet in 1972 i want that menu but an archivist will go into this cupboard or whatever it is storeroom or pile of stuff piles of boxes nobody really knows what's in them 
and we'll sit down and take the form in which that material already sits. Okay, here's a box. And we'll describe that box and say, you know, box one or whatever is, you know, what's in that box. So that some of the meaning of the material comes from how it sits, where it sits. Oh, well, we found this box in this particular attic, you know, connected to the housing department of the corporation or whatever. And so that tells us why these particular people are in talked about in this box as opposed to being talked about in another. It's a different way of seeing and envisaging information and using it from its context also. So we wouldn't just take out all this stuff out of one box and say, oh, well, that's about so-and-so, we'll put that there, and that's about so-and-so, we'll put it over there. No, it keeps the form in which it comes. Now, I should stop there because archivists are going to think, oh, she's not an archivist, which is why I work with Helen and Amelia, because they are, <laughs> especially Helen. But we have, as you mentioned, Amelia is, is the oral history queen of the East, and Helen totally knows how to build an archive from scratch. She knows what it will cost. She knows how to organize that material, what kind of space you need, how it should be climate controlled, what sort of human resources you need to assess material, organize it and what is always crucial to real archives and archivists is how to make it accessible to others these are not meant to be private little hideaway things they can be if you want that what is so marvelous is if you can convince a corporation you know you were sitting on a pile of gold i mean that's what i call it archival gold just by existing over can be a couple of decades or it can be over five generations you have accumulated stuff. That stuff has real value. It tells all kinds of stories you can't even imagine. Let us add it. We will find those stories and we will tell them. And then you suddenly have this huge extra asset as a corporation that you can really do things with. I mean, you don't have to go into language about, you know, enhancing your brand, but you can if you want. That's not really my language. I like to find a good story and tell a good story. And sometimes, of course, corporations are worried, ooh, well, maybe it's not going to be a good story. Maybe it's going to be, ooh, difficult. Maybe it's going to be drugs or slavery. Uh, in the West at the moment, that's a big yes, issue. I was going to say yeah. slavery, opium in this area. Yes. But, you know, first of all, find it <laughs> and then decide what you want to do with it i mean there will always be another gener i mean hopefully there will be another generation after you they will have different concerns they will have different questions if you haven't kept the raw material just at the very basic level then they won't get answers so at the very least just keep that raw material even if you keep it quiet it doesn't it, that's fine too but have it because your successes will want to know that's one point the larger point you know, until you know what your story is, you don't know if you're sitting yes. on a pile of dross or a pile of gold. I was delightfully surprised with our first client in England, Santander UK, the bank. Got in touch through Helen, of course, that they wanted to find their history. And I thought, that's weird, they don't know. But of course, they're a Spanish bank. They, they got a British bank because they bought Abbey National and a few other building societies. Now, building societies are particularly weird British creation. Yeah, I was, a, I was part of Abbey National. I bet you but were. Look, I mean, scratch just about but every... I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what a building society well, is. Well, I'm about to tell you. Because, um, <laughs> of course, a couple of years ago, I didn't know what a building society was, and that's what I love about this kind of work. You do actually learn new things. So, I thought, hmm, building societies, that sounds a bit dull. Not at all. And thankfully for Santander, it turns out to be a beautiful story. So, early free trade 
lobbyist and anti-slavery campaigner Richard Cobden in the 1830s in Britain, real promoter of the Great Reform Act. I mean, this is a huge moment in British history and there are lots of other people out there who know more about that than I do. Richard Cobden founded one of the very first building societies, the national bit of Abbey National. Because, of course, Abbey National was previously the Abbey Road and St John's Wood Building Society, and over here we had the National Building Society, which is older. So the National Society was founded by Cobden and his good friends specifically to extend the right to vote. So I was fairly stunned by that. How does that work? Well, in the 1830s in Britain, in order to have the right to vote, of course, you had to be a bloke, step one, you had to be a man, and you had to own some land. Now, at this time, you'd had all these, a whole new sort of generation of working men coming out of industrial revolutionaries, Birmingham, Manchester, Lancashire, etc. They were having, for the first time, regular salaries. They were moved away from their homes to get closer to the factories to get those regular salaries. They were meeting their friends either, <laughs> interestingly, if not both, in the pub and the temperance hall. It's where you don't drink. Temperance is, of course, the whole movement is sort of against alcohol as some sort of evil, sinful thing, a bit like opium. And also the non-conformist church movement, so not the Church of England, but the others, they were very big up in these northern areas and for the working man. Now, how can you get working men the right to vote? They need to have a chunk of land. Yes. So you found a building society, as Cobden did with the National. You buy up big estates and you chop them down into the smallest bits possible to qualify as a landholding to extend the voting franchise across as many men as possible. And they would all get together in the pub or the church hall or the temperance hall. They'd all put a bit of money into the pot each week. And there were all sorts of incredibly marvellously detailed rules, how much each would spend on a drink while they were talking about this <laughs> and who was in charge of so that. So you could see all this original stuff? Oh, yes. Yes, because there are archives. So on the one hand, we had Helen and Amelia doing archive surveys, frankly, all over Britain at this point. There were other building societies and they had, oh, we've just found 1,800 boxes of something over here, you know, and oh, there's another sort of 1,000 boxes over here. If you're part of history and you're saying, so Santander says, we'd like a project, are they saying, we've got 10 years for this? Because the fact is there is probably quite a lot of info out there. Well... There are different priorities, obviously, at different times. The first thing was to actually find the story, and that's the bit I love to do. And, and I got really fascinated by all this. I had no idea. And, you know, Cobden's daughter turns out to be a suffragette, and I'm thinking, I like these ah, people. Yeah. I mean, you have to end up learning about the housing market in Britain and so on and so forth, and you gradually pull all these things together. And, of and course, then, and the suffragettes start voting for women in Britain. No, there's just no stopping them. <laughs> um, so eventually you get Abbey National becoming a peer. So you have to get into Margaret Thatcher's thing with the Big Bang in the city. I mean, the marvellous thing, you think you're just telling the story of a company, but of course these things don't exist in isolation. You have to have the whole context of the society in which they're operating, you know, the events, dear boy events. I mean, you've got to pull all that in have the context around and it makes much more sense of what this particular company or that particular family were doing at that time. It actually became a really interesting story. I was really having fun with that. We can tell them their story, we can tell them where all their archives are and then there can be a process in which we discuss the kinds of things you might or might not want to do with them. Maybe you just want to keep it quiet as I said and that's your right but at least now you know or you might want to 
actually go the whole hog in the other direction and build a whole big archive, pull all this stuff together, hire 15 people to go through all these thousands of boxes and say what's in them and work out, you know, what matches and what doesn't. Or you might want something in between. Let's just tidy up this cupboard, have a little note on the website. That's fine too. With corporations, with family businesses, why do we need history? What is it saying about a firm by saying, oh, they go back? In the first place, it comes from a kind of curiosity. And I think lots of people now in Hong Kong, we've all been made aware of, you know, passage of time, things change. We're in a new era compared to a few decades ago. How do we hold on to previous times materials that maybe are no longer sort of relevant in any kind of daily way, but you don't want to throw it out? It often starts these projects that we get involved in. And and certainly most of the books that I have written so far have started with usually a a patriarch at a certain age, maybe in their 70s. They have worked so hard for decades, often, you know, starting from nothing, like Harry, Harry Layla, or starting with this sort of faint shadow of a company, as Michael Green did with Arnhold's China Trading Company, and really making something special and making something very successful, working incredibly hard, and then finally getting to a point, maybe in your 60s or 70s or something, and thinking, how do I actually deal with that? What if, for example, usually the immediate next generation may or may not be interested, but you don't know about the one after that. And in fact, somebody else who I thought had a very good way of doing this was the late, great Anne Martin. And more than a decade ago, she wrote this delightful little series, and it was called Letters to My Grandchildren. I mean, such a good idea, because she had been brought up in Shanghai before the war. She had a lot of, you know, just what was that like? Um, And just a very sort of natural way to explain what was that like. So the first point is curiosity about your own origins. There are a couple of projects I've done where people did not know when their company was founded or it wasn't really clear who exactly and how exactly was the Hong Kong Club founded. You have to go into archives to find that raw material. With the Hong Kong Club, it was a handwritten notebook in the Jardines archives in Britain that literally showed these guys sitting around and saying, oh, I think we should have a club, and they made some notes. Uh, And, you know, who should we let in? You know, and they made their rules, that kind of thing, raw data. So, first of all, When were we founded? Why? Where? What were we doing? So it's that curiosity. And then it's that combination with a sense of legacy. You've made something brilliant. You know it's good. You've spent your whole life. You've given your life to this project. How do you hold on to that? What's a good way to handle that? So it can be, first of all, a series of very practical questions. Do you keep things in plastic? Please, no, don't do that. Um, Do you stick things to other things with glue? No. Just don't go there. The best ways are often the old-fashioned ways. You know those old-fashioned kind of photo albums when you had little black and white prints with photo corners on very hard paper? There's no plastic, there's no glue, Those, and especially black and white photos. That is the only way to 
you know, be sure they'll last. Colour photos are always going to discolour. It's really hard. So, of course, you want to scan them. Now, I'm not going to name the family, but there is a famous family uh, here yeah. where, you know, he got all excited about scanning technology and scanned everything in the 80s and threw away the originals. Yes. Please don't do that. Yes. That's just a nightmare because, of course, scanning technology now is so much better yeah. than it was. Now, I hear this often that people get rid of the originals no. and I think just keep them in a shoebox. Keep them. Keep them, keep them. And if please, with a pencil, put the names on the back. And Who's dates. in this photo? Yes. Yes. So anyway, if you're thinking about legacy, these are the kind of sort of basic first steps yeah. of hard practicality. Oh, don't come around to my office. Can I just <laughs> give me a couple of weeks? <laughs> I, I'm also one of the worst. Don't ask about the shoeboxes under my bed. Think about what people outside your company could learn about what you have learned along the way. And think about what makes Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is a combination of all of these stories, all of these stories, not just what we think is daily reality today, but it's what your grandparents did. Why did they come here? Or it's what your great grandparents did. Or it's the fact that this company was trading something completely different. You know, it was silk in the 1860s and now it's building materials. Why and how did that happen? You just learn so much about a place, but you, more to the point, are making a contribution to that place. There are communities in this town who have pulled together their history. There's a Jewish historical society, for example, and they combine all sorts of stories and materials of course it's always by volunteers so that has its pros and cons there are other communities who have not done that and who might or might not be interested in doing it if they don't it will be lost and there will be no story to tell to the grandkids and they say daddy mommy grandpa why were you in hong kong what were you doing there and nobody will know if you don't keep it together nobody will know and also my point often is that people regard their own personal history or their, the history of their company as too ordinary. Who would care? Mm. And yet it is. There's, mm. going to be, there's going to be nuggets, isn't mm. there? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's cropped up on every single project I've been involved in. People say, oh, that, that's not interesting. Oh, well, there's some stuff in that cupboard, but don't bother. And I, and I have to get on my hands and knees and get into that <laughs> cupboard because, you know, if I don't, they won't sort of take it seriously. And also people have a strange idea of what constitutes information. Everything is information. So it might be, it's not, I'm not just talking about paper and words, it can be things. You know, perhaps a club has a whole series of, of banners along the wall or, you know, paintings on the wall or mementos of this or that or the kinds of things that they used to give to guest speakers in the 50s are quite different <laughs> to what they give now. That tells us something. You know, there's a story in that. I mean, they were only... But they're saving money. <laughs> <laughs> that could be part of it or it could be like they only ever used to give ties. In other words, they only ever invited male speakers because you know you're not going to give a tie to a woman so you know it can be things can be papers can be thoughts can be absolutely conversations conversations are incredibly important and oh you don't want to know about that and i have to say yes 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 we do and there are marvelous stories like you know it turns out somebody's grandparents came here to to run a pub for sailors in 1904 mm. and now we're all members of the hong kong club and we're, we're marvelously well set up in the world but your grandparents were something else and they did amazing things and you know why not keep track of that for corporations i think that the kind of daunting thing is that you know they produce an amazing amount of records every day i mean think of all the emails and the notes from meetings and endless meetings and you know i'm sure 
even within corporations. I don't think I'm lying if I say there's an immense amount of sort of blah, blah, and you don't know, you know, is this important? Should I keep all these notes from all these meetings or should I keep all these emails? Well, that's another sort of subset of archive management. And you can set up systems that will automatically keep things that we assume to be of value that will have meaning. For something to be of archival value, it just means that it will have meaning down the road somewhere, decades on. It will still mean something. It will tell us something. So a sort of en masse mailing to undisclosed recipients saying something reasonably fatuous, that's probably without archival meaning. But an actual argument back and forth between a couple of managers about an issue of policy, that's important. So you need... I mean, nobody in their day job, as you rightly note, you know, has that time to think that through. And that's, of course, when you've got to bring in the archivists. My thanks to Vodine England talking there on preserving history and the work of History Inc. So go and have a look at the Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page for some of those links to programmes and archives. Here's wishing you a lovely run up to the Year of the Dragon. Just a quick notice. Kadori Farm and Botanical Garden is specially opening its doors to the public on the third and fourth day of the Chinese New Year. So that's the 12th and 13th of February. So people can enjoy the blossoms, including the Chinese New Year flower. They can ascend Kunyam Shan for good